The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Here we are in the middle of our study of the Eightfold Path. Um, in, we're, we've been studying right speech, and this month we'll be studying right action, um, and leading to uh, right livelihood. So this is the, what's called the Moral Discipline Group, and it is such a great place on the path to be because it's where we really see where we are in our daily life. There's so much material to look at, and so much that will either let us know where we are suffering, where we're having stress, <coughs> excuse me, or conversely, you know, sometimes being surprised or delighted to realize what has lightened up in our life, where we're starting to feel a little freedom from things that once might have caught, have caught us up. Um, so this, I, I love this part of the path. I think it's really rich and it can be overwhelming, but, you know, we're focused on the rich part. <laughs> and... <clears throat> It's also so wonderful to see how it proceeds out of where we started. We started with just a basic understanding, enough wisdom to start the path, to recognize that there is suffering or stress in our lives. You know, that's what brought us here. Um, what is that? And what causes it? You know, starting to understand what causes it. And we wouldn't be here if we didn't have some inkling or some confidence that it could come to an end. Um, and we're studying the Eightfold Path to, to bring about that liberation. And how those fundamental views, you know, the actions and consequences, the comma, the cause, causes and conditions that lead to results, how that rolls right into, those views roll into our intentions. So we can either be working from intentions of greed, um, ill will, and cruelty, and seeing where those come up and how those cause stress in our lives. Um, or, you know, as we go along, we can discover the way to come from a place of letting go of greed, not needing to hang on to things so tightly and cling to them, uh, cultivating goodwill in ourselves or discovering goodwill and discovering compassion. And how, so how right view rolled into right intention and then how that flows into our speech. It's so interesting how, you know, greed or ill will or cruelty are present in the way we talk to ourselves or the way we talk to others when we're triggered and conversely how we can, you know, be able to not be tightened around something, to let loose of it or to be kind or to be compassionate in the way, ways that we talk to ourselves or others. Um, so right intention flows right into speech and then speech influences how we act you know what we tell ourselves really does shape what we do um, what we do then conditions what we tell ourselves after that maybe you've noticed yourself you know how you reflect on things once you take action so today uh, Chris and Bruni will take us through in depth uh, right action and what that implies for us. And um, then, you know, as we study this, we're paving the way with these, this moral discipline group towards 
the next group, which is the concentration group. And that's where we focus on the qualities or the skills through right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration that actually enable us to deepen what we're discovering through these things, these ways we act in daily life. The more focused we can become, the more we can see the opportunities for liberation and for freedom. Um, and that takes us right back to the deeper level of the wisdom group. Again, to right view and right intention in, the, in their most deep expression or in their expression of freedom. So as, it, as we've said, or as it's been said, um, the interesting thing about this path is it's both the way to liberation and it's also the expression of liberation. So as we come back around into the wisdom group, maybe you get an opportunity more and more to feel how you already are free in some ways and feel it more deeply and act from it more deeply. So today um, we're going to start with a guided sit and then uh, Chris will do a Dharma talk on the, the fundamentals of right action and how those can uh, help us guide or limit or uh, shape our path. Um, we'll have time for a breakout session into small groups to look at these factors of right action. We'll take a break. And then Bruni will do a Dharma talk, uh, taking us into what it means to act with integrity. You know, what is it when we're gathered and we're united and we're not working against ourselves? We'll do another breakout session to explore that and integrate that with um, inspiration from others. And then um, we'll have time for a question and answer. And finally, after we close today, we have some snacks and some tea and a chance to be with one another. So... Um, let's start with a little meditation. This will be a guided reflection, but find a comfortable, grounded posture that facilitates perhaps kind awareness towards your experience right now. Just whatever you're bringing in today. How are you right now? Taking time to notice what's present in your body. How are you on a bodily level? What, how does that express itself in your breath? Allowing and being present for any emotions that are present or simply the fundamental sensations of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant.
And if thinking is present, allowing that. Noticing what your mind is speaking to itself. And how does that impact the body and the feeling and the breath? Whatever is present for you right now, recognizing that you are on a path of discovery and there's no need to be in conflict with what is arising on that path. Perhaps you can greet whatever arises as if it's a friendly guide on your path pointing the way, pointing out what's here at this point on the path. No matter what you encounter, on this path, the guide that's showing that experience to you is pointing in the direction of freedom. As you rest into each moment and whatever it presents, perhaps allowing the following idea to enter your field of awareness. And that is what for you is the experience of mindful intention with respect to action in your life. There's no need to work at this or think about it, but just noticing what comes up for you when you allow the phrase 
actions we take with the body to enter your awareness. Simply noticing whatever bubbles up with that idea of action. And how is it shaped by the internal speech of intention? When is it not shaped? When is it reactive? Perhaps also noticing what is your relationship with the words right action or mindful action. If that internal guide points to areas of your life where action is challenging or complicated, simply allowing that into your attention, along with times that action in your life is clean and clear and mindful.
Next, perhaps dropping in the words non-harming and seeing what bubbles up about non-harming and action in your life. Allowing that sometimes we have to see the polarities of harming in order to also see the non-harming. Are there ways in which non-harming can lead to a sense of safety for you and others? And allowing yourself to open into whatever form of meditation is conducive to your well-being right now. Relaxing into the discovery as it arises this afternoon and in this very moment.
Before I get started, I, I brought this to share. It's a new publication. It's the, so, uh, the Buddha's Teachings on Social and Communal Harmony. And it's, a, it's excerpts from the suttas that pertain to questions of right action and social harmony. So if you'd like a, an introduction to some aspects of the suttas themselves that pertain to this, this is a fairly slim volume, and it's got a nice introductions to each section by Bhikkhu Bodhi. So just wanted to point out that this has just been published. Yeah, so bringing up, bringing us into the topic of right action. Liz had you reflect a little on what that means to you. It's, uh, it can sound constricting or it can sound like, great, somebody's going to finally tell me what to do. <laughs> and uh, in the way, you know, that these teachings are framed, it's not telling you what to do. It's pointing to the unskillful qualities that get in the way of our, of our sensitivity and our creativity and our awareness of what to do in each moment. So it's definitely not a rule book for complex situations of exactly what to do, you know. It's uh, in keeping with this overall point and theme of this path of ending suffering, it's pointing out these very fundamental ways that our actions can cause harm to ourselves and to others. And it's inviting us to adopt certain boundaries as training, as practices in training. When these are presented as precepts, uh, say on retreat where we take the precepts, or it's a beautiful way that people all through the history of Buddhism have declared themselves to be Buddhists is by taking these precepts, taking on these precepts. And it's often translated into English as I undertake the training to do these things. And in that spirit, you know, we can use it as a mirror on our intentions and and our behavior. And we can also adopt these as boundaries that really help us. They're like mindfulness wake-ups when we get anywhere near these boundaries. We, maybe they can heighten our mindfulness and our consideration of what we're doing. So these guidelines, the three guidelines or precepts that fall under right action are refraining from killing living beings, sometimes it's understood as striking out or just harming, you know, the using our bodily action to harm living beings. Refraining from stealing or taking what is not offered. And refraining from sexual misconduct. So it's interesting, there are these kind of three basic bodily actions. You know, you strike out at something that you're averse to or you want to grab and have something that you like. And then there's this sexual energy that's a third force in the body that acts out in all kinds of ways. So I want to take a moment just to appreciate how our quality of life is supported by all the moments in our own life where we have refrained from any of these activities. Right? And all the people that we know, who all the moments in their life, even if there have been major lapses, there are doubtless many moments in their lives where they've refrained from these activities. Right? And most of the world somehow manages to refrain from these activities in most of the moments of their lives. So we have civilization. <laughs> right? So these are really fundamental practices that we can work on how we can extend. 
and working with these issues, it's so valuable, the approach of the Buddhist path, that we're looking at not just you shouldn't do this because obviously it hurts other people, but we're really getting to the root of how it hurts ourselves and what kind, well, how can we become sensitized to the way that when we act in these ways we're actually harming ourselves and we're, we are closing down, constricting, hardening, narrowing our view somehow in the way that we act. And when we act from the opposite of these motivations, we're really opening up to greater inner peace and happiness. There's a wonderful phrase, the bliss of blamelessness, which is one of the kinds of bliss that's available on this path. When you know that you have not done anything harmful or taken anything or caused any harm, there's a, there's a great peace and stability and a kind of bliss that... Okay, I, I'm, you know, it's something you can rely on in this world that you yourself have not acted in a harmful way. The bliss of blamelessness. And then there's the idea of holding this as a gift that we give to other people the gift of fearlessness, the gift of safety when we're able to act this way. We make ourselves, there's a, there's a line in the suttas make yourself a safe refuge for all beings. So it's a beautiful way to hold the aspiration to make yourself a safe refuge for all beings. So when we're working with these things, we, I would advise you over the month to try not to approach it in a kind of typically Western kind of legalistic way, like you're trying to get at you know, all the hypothetical edge cases you can think of of when you might need to violate these things or how, you know, what would be fair under certain you know, circumstances. Try not to think of it hypothetically. Really try to keep it experiential in the moment when you're in a real situation where you have the resources and the creativity that come from that situation to help you, the felt sense in your body of what the motive is in that situation, so that you're really keeping it alive and direct and embodied in your exploration of how you work with this. And also not to get, there are ways that I'll talk about that we can extend the understanding since the people who come to this practice tend not to necessarily be currently involved in a lot of killing and stealing and raping and so forth. But So there are ways that we can extend this, but also just take time to celebrate what, what goodness you already have and don't get caught up in using this as a way to, you know, be hard on yourself about working on all the edge cases, but just appreciate that if you're if you're looking at the edge cases, there's a huge central middle here where you can appreciate the bliss of blamelessness in your own life. So we'll look at these from the point of view of one of the Buddha's teachings to his son Rahula, where he was advising him to consider in this way. Would this action that I wish to do with my body lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences and painful results or a wholesome one with pleasant consequences and pleasant results? And then if it, if it would be harmful in that way, you should refrain. If it wouldn't, then you may do it. And then you look again, what you keep watching while you're doing it. Is something about while you're doing it giving rise to any of these considerations? 
And then after you've done it, you look and see. So we're looking at long-term, we're learning long-term. Oh, that seemed wise enough at the time, but look, it really, there was something I didn't understand about that situation and it led to harm. You know, so you're just looking before and during and after in what was the result and what was the effect on you and the effect on the other people. So let's look at this first uh, precept, not killing, not striking out and harming. So this is a vast field to really look at this. You know, when we look at the intentions, maybe we're pretty good at curbing our intentions and not letting them break into action. But what's with these intentions? It certainly involves skillfully working with irritation, anger, rage, fear, anxiety. Those are the, those are the big emotions that are behind this kind of action all the time in relation to our fellow humans as well as other beings. Insects are, uh, you know, often an area, you know, we talk about insects. It's a wonderful area to practice because it's an area where a lot of us do have the habits of just pushing aside, you know, swatting aside what's something that bothers us. And it's a small enough area that we can work with it and we can see what we can learn from ourselves and learn what irritation feels like and what that move to strike out feels like. I've learned so much over, you know, I grew up in a house with kept fly swatters around and, you know, you didn't, it was bothering you, you swatted it. And, you know, it's been such an interesting practice for me to learn to really, you know, take some trouble to take those, cap- I have a little thing in a cardboard that I used to catch spiders, you know, and take them outside and put them in the grass. And it's been, it's just tenderizing the heart to learn to care and take time to look at the little thing and notice its parts, you know. I was doing walking meditation one time and a praying mantis was sitting on the walking path and I noticed that it was following me with its head as I walked back and forth. You know, so it knew I was somehow there in the world of, a, of an insect and it knew that I was walking back and forth. It was just so touching. For a long time I had a different level of issue with swarms like ant, ant invasions in the kitchen, you know. It, and I learned a lot from Andrea Fella on this around trusting their intelligence, you know. They're there for food or water and so if you remove the f- source to food or water they will go away and even no matter how big a hoard it is they're intelligent and they're there for a reason. So there are all kinds of creative things you can learn about appreciating your fellow beings by you know, working with them and with their purposes and studying up a little about their habits in order to, you know, learn different ways to work with things that might otherwise be annoying. So the basic practice is to learn to feel that intention to cause harm, to get rid of something, the impulse to strike out, to eliminate what we don't like. So in looking at it in terms of before, during, and after, of course, before we start to, we notice aversion, the basic mounting sense of irritation and not liking, unpleasantness. Maybe this hardening, the closing down of the mind, and you you just quit thinking about, you uh, forget practice, this is really annoying me, you know, I'm going to do something about this. Notice that closing down. During, you might have to look back on it to see how you felt during, you know. Uh, But the kind of blindness, the narrowness of focus, just simply acting without mindfulness usually. And there might also be a burst of short-term gratification and got rid of it, you know. And that's part of the 
appeal is that little moment, then that gets in your brain as a moment of gratification. So if you notice that and recognize it, then you're aware that it's just this short-term satisfaction. Then afterwards, it's interesting to reflect that you're really only temporarily safe from whatever it was because the world is, you know, probably still full of whatever it was. So you haven't learned much except how to stay on guard and tense all the time, right? When people were involved, there might be expectations now that you have of revenge or punishment or at least continued struggle with whatever it was. And you might feel regret, remorse, guilt. It might just reinforce the feeling of being helplessly driven by your anger and fear, right? That the world is a place of constant battle. So just notice in each of these actions how you're conditioning yourself. So if you do find yourself acting in these ways or the impulses to act in these ways rising up strongly, we can use it not to get tied up in knots of guilt or inner conflict, but to really examine where is this coming from, to meet it with compassion, and to use it to motivate the next factors in the path. This is why we we practice calming meditation, breath meditation, to really take the edge off of our energy that's so highly reactive all the time, right? And we can practice metta and compassion as explicit practices to connect us with how all beings want to be alive and to not be harmed. And then there's cultivating the positive qualities, friendliness, respect, reverence for life, fellow being, fellow feeling for all beings, like learning things about insects that might be interesting to you. So just take a moment to reflect on your experiences with this movement to strike out and harm or kill. How does it sit with you to make the intention to practice with extending your ability to refrain from taking life or causing harm. Just sit with that for a moment. So the second factor is not taking what is not offered or not taking what is not given. The most clear-cut form of this we could say stealing, but there's an invitation to be more sensitive to what is offered, you know, and not taking what is not offered. It's a great factor in offering basic safety in interpersonal situations. You know, people are not going to be taking things. There's not going to be this grabbing energy going on all around you. I so appreciate the safety of retreat practice. You know, you, if you could leave your wallet in the middle, somebody left their wallet in, somewhere in the middle of the community hall over at IRC, and it just sat there all week, you know, and at the end they noticed, got it. <laughs> it's just a wonderful feeling that, you know, that people are not going to take what's not theirs, not going to take what's not offered. So I've been so touched by chances I've had to practice with monastics where they are just meticulous with this, you know. They won't open a magazine on the table without, unless you offer it to them. It's 
they, they can't even ask, you know. I've, I've served this monk many times, and it's quite a practice to think ahead of what he might need to have offered because, you know, he's not really able to ask for something. That's the monastic level of practice, but, you know, really, it really offering what there is. And then when people would offer him things, I can't remember what. It would make a better story if I could. But something I, that I gave him that I just assumed would be used up, you know, there was a little bit of left. And it was, um, you know, carefully laid out with the things that we had lent him at, to return at the end, you know. And it was just so sweet to know that someone was taking that much care with what was offered and giving back what was left of it. So, of course... It's not just things, and this is where this can get interesting for many of us, but when are we taking what's not really offered in terms of people's time, people's attention, turns at speaking in a group, you know, credit for successes you might have had at work, favors that people, you know, there's a tendency to think people maybe enjoy doing you favors, like maybe your mother enjoys doing your laundry when you go home for the holidays or something. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe she's had enough of that. <laughs> you know, so, so what, you know, just thinking about how people, how, how, when are you taking what's not offered? Another big area is the power of choice and decision making. You know, is there someone in your life that you are in the habit of deciding, you know, what movie we're going to see, where we're going to eat, something, you know. Uh, so just looking at what we're taking and then there's the area of not hanging on to things that are clearly owed. So maybe we make the most self-centered interpretation of taxes that we possibly can or fudge on it a little bit somehow or procrastinate on paying our bills or, you know, returning things you've borrowed and waiting to be reminded to return things you've borrowed, things like that. So this practice gives us a window onto all sorts of motives. You know, there's sensual craving involved. There's all the flavors of insecurity, fundamentally insecurity, comparison of status and possessions. You know, it's a rich area for looking at our motives. So in the moment, how can we catch in the moment what's involved in this? You might notice before, what do you do? Is there some hesitation, you know, looking around to see who's looking, maybe, if you're going to take something? Rationalization, when you're working with your taxes, you know, long rationalizations about why you're doing what you're doing. During, again, there's often some closing down, narrowing of focus, maybe a speeding up, you know, or a kind of furtive activity, doing something really fast so that you don't have to look at it very much. Afterwards, it contributes to a kind of, I don't know, uh, besides guilt and so forth, it might contribute to a kind of untrustworthiness that we have in ourselves, that we can't really trust ourselves to do the right thing. These are things that can hurt our own self-confidence if we just, if we intend not to do it and we do it anyway all the time. And there's again a fear of being found out or thought poorly of. And also it reinforces cynicism because if you do it, you tend to think other people do it, right? So it it reinforces a lack of trust and a cynicism about people in general. Whereas if you know that you can do it, then you know that other people can do it. And then there's more possibility of trusting people. And then a few broader considerations. So much is actually offered these days or pushed 
pushed down our throats, more or less. That there's a, often the issue is looking for, at e, even at things that are for sale that have hidden costs, right, in terms of exploitation or environmental damage. So the long chain of what's behind what's offered. Not taking more than your share and using resources, water, and so forth. And supporting and working for legal and economic and political structures that are fair so that enough is offered to everyone so that there isn't a pressure to take what's not offered. And cultivating the positive feelings of contentment and simplicity, respect and compassion for others, generosity and offering what's needed, trust and letting go, so just taking a moment to reflect on your experiences with this movement of taking what's not offered. Can you make the intention to practice with extending your ability to refrain from taking what's not offered? So the third category is not engaging in sexual misconduct. So here we're undertaking the practice of raising our awareness of how sexual energy arises in us and how we might be acting on the base of that in a way that often is mixed in with the other two of acting out in some aggressive way or taking what's not offered in some way. So it's important to understand sexuality is a natural feature of life. And the, the, the teaching is not against sexuality. It's talking about specifics of conduct that cause harm. I mean, sexuality is how we got here in the first place. And it's a powerful potential source of joy and intimacy and pleasure. And it can be and has been a source of tremendous harm and suffering in the world. So it's a very powerful energy that can arise in all kinds of circumstances. It can be quite challenging to work with and to learn to engage with appropriately. As with the other two aspects, there are relatively clear cases, you know, where, where incest, uh, sex with minors, rape, adultery, they form the basis of a sort of minimally safe community that we can offer to each other. And then there are all these less obvious ways where this energy gets entangled with all sorts of, of wanting and not wanting and with our self-image and, you know, the way that we view people, whether we view people, you know, from the heart as other human beings or more as objects or visual sites or sources of support and security or however we're using this energy to... Um, somehow manipulate or use other people. It's a very rich window in practice for exploring the interaction of mind and body, identities, self-views, intentions, energy, speech. Just looking at, you know, what's a mental, the relationship between the mental images or the visual images and the arising of this energy. And regarding it, 
as a, as a sense, developing a sense of ease with it as a natural energy as it arises in us, and often learning to work with it, say, in meditation when it comes up, of not having to act on it, but of sitting and learning about it as an energy and how it manifests in you and how you can, how you can be with it in ways that don't necessarily involve acting on it. And then in relation to others, um, we can work with cultivating more kindness, intimacy, honesty, enjoyment, without acting out of greed, aversion, or delusion. So take a moment to reflect on your experiences with questionable conduct arising from sexual energy. Can you make the intention to practice with deepening your sensitivity in this area to refrain from sexual misconduct? So I'd like to conclude by offering three wishes for all of you. May you find healing from any harm that's been done to you in any of these areas. May you be able to offer the gift of safety and fearlessness to all the beings you share your life with and make yourself a refuge for them. And may you experience the bliss of blamelessness. So Liz can lead us in a breakout session. So, um... <clears throat> I haven't counted people yet. I was going to put some safety around it, yeah. Um, so, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Okay, um, so I'd like to invite you to uh, form a group of three with uh, two other people. There will be one group of four. So um, maybe find some people, if possible, that you haven't worked with before, um, just to get to know other people here. And find a space in the room. You can cluster your chairs. And after you've formed your group, I will give you the reflection questions that you'll be exploring together. So um, thank you very much for uh, finding your group of three. And there are three questions that you're invited to explore. Um, we're going to have about 25 minutes, or 20 minutes, I'd say, more like. Um, so that gives each of you a full seven minutes uh, for speaking. Although what I'm going to suggest is that you say a couple of sentences about any particular question that I'm going to pose and then let the next person speak and keep going around the circle and sharing just a little bit because sometimes it's by hearing one another that you're inspired to reflect you know, or to remember things for yourself that are of interest. Now, as we've talked about these topics this morning, as Chris said, 
Um, some of them are quite sensitive topics. So as you do these reflections, please feel free to maintain your own safety by sharing at a level that helps you explore, but is, doesn't feel unsafe for you. Because the questions have to do with harming, taking what's not given, and sexuality. So these are areas where you can um, explore to the degree that you feel comfortable exploring with your partners. Um, the three questions to focus on are what helps you refrain when tempted to harm? What helps you refrain when tempted to take what is not given? And what helps you refrain when tempted towards sexual misconduct? So you're free to touch on each of those, to focus on the ones that are most germane for you, but basically the three. What It's all about what helps you refrain when you're tempted to harm, when you're tempted to take what is not given, or when you're, in temp when you're tempted to engage in what you might consider sexual misconduct. So any questions about that before we start? So, um, yes, Sylvie. Um, you can answer any of the questions because sometimes one or two of them are more up for you than the other, or all three. But I would recommend you know take one at a time, say a couple sentences, and then keep going around the circle. Just allow yourselves time to touch on the three. Um, remembering that when you're, we're still practicing wise speech and wise listening. So when you're listening to your partners. Um, please allow yourself the space to fully listen, not be preparing what you're going to say, but really being open to your partner and practice noticing what's coming up as you're listening. And then when it's your turn to speak, taking your time, noticing how you are in your body, just allowing yourself the full wise speech practice too. So you can start with uh, the person wearing the most layers. 